Movement Rio Media presents A Few Good Physios with Dr. Eric Munoz and Dr. Leonidas Scantolides. You can't handle the truth. What is physical therapy? More research. More research. True therapeutic effect. Join us each week as we discuss current trends in medicine, rehabilitation, and strength and conditioning. The answers are out there. All content is a collaboration between On Point Sports Care and Integrated PT Squared. A Few Good Physios is not medical advice and is used for educational purposes only. If you are having pain and or health-related complaints, please seek out a licensed healthcare professional. Thank you for downloading. Enjoy. All right, episode 27, A Few Good Physios. Welcome back. We are back in action, 2019. It's been so long, I feel like we're doing this all over again from the beginning. Yeah, I mean, just uh, we're, as we just said a couple of seconds ago, we're getting, we're rusty. Our phones weren't on airplane mode, <laughs> uh, kind of figuring out how we're going to set up, set up our flow, but uh, it's good to be back. Uh, Lee and I have a lot to catch up on personally, so it'll be an interesting conversation peppered in with uh, a lot of professional developments. Um, Leo fill us in on some cool stuff on a course, and uh, our usual um, talks on the healthcare system in general. We're just going to be talking about everything today, yeah, just like everything, philosophy and health, and anyways, no, yep. we we got plans. We definitely got plans. We got a nice, uh, flexible outline. That's right. But, um, yeah, I mean, I guess a lot has happened uh, since our last episode. I mean, in terms of, I'll, I'll let Lee set it off. We um, He put me onto a cool podcast that I didn't hear about, but, I mean, mo- some of you guys may have. Mm. And I'll let Lee take it over from here. Yeah, so I got this, um, I, I work with a really great trainer and she is is interested in going to PT school. She's applying right now. She got a lot of uh, potential, and she, she's going to be a great physical therapist once she finishes school. And she listens to a lot of health podcasts, and she listens to us, which is really cool. And she was like, "You have to listen to this podcast by Wondery. It's called Doctor Death." And literally, as she was asking me every time I saw, it, and I kept, I was like, "Oh my god, I haven't listened to it. You know, I've been really lazy." Um, and then finally. I started the first episode because you have to do it in order. It's not like uh, um, like it comes up with a new episode and you uh, just listen it's to it. a series it. kind of a thing. Yeah, yeah. so it's like a, a story. And so I got hooked and it was like binging on the podcast and it was it just blew me away. And it, it hooked me for multiple reasons. One, because we're medical practitioners, what, it ha- what had happened was really friggin' scary. And since it was real, that was even more scary. And the fact that uh, how it was handled, I, you know, from, from what we talk about, I'm not surprised how badly it was handled. And also, it also reinforces what we keep talking about with something like going into surgery, especially for your lower back, for your neck, the risks. You know, this is obviously a particular case and very rare, but it's still how what the podcast, in, in my opinion, what the purpose was, was to really show how something like that can happen, and even now, it could still happen because there hasn't been changes in how the board handles those cases, how hospitals handle those cases. Um, I don't want to go too deep into it, but basically, it takes place in Texas, and it's uh, if you want to Google this guy, uh, the the physician who was um, being mainly talked about, his name is Dr. Christopher Dunch. I don't know how to, the correct spelling, but uh, I Googled it right away, and it, it came up. You'll see the mugshot. 
Um, the mug shot. Wow, the mug that, shot. that says everything. That's the end result. And and uh, it, it was it was awful. I mean, the this went on for over a year, if not a little longer. And there were deaths involved. There were people who were um, made paraplegics and tetraplegics, and um, it was solely because they didn't. You no, know, I shouldn't say this solely. It 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 was you know this a uh, uh, kind of a a circle of unfortunate circumstances that added to it but also the the lack of due diligence you know the the immediate trust that people have when they watch let's say a commercial for medicine and and doctors and like oh wow that looks like a legitimate association that's promoting this doctor and i'm going to trust that i'm going to meet him he was he was personable and he, he gained my trust because he said i can help you and you know all these other things but you know I don't mean to be dramatic, but like, did you see? You have Netflix. You have Netflix. Yeah, yeah. Do you, are you getting advertisements for the Ted Bundy tapes? It pops up. Yeah, it what definitely the, pops. What's the first line? Oh, that, I didn't. Uh, I haven't seen it. I have. I can't recall, but yeah. this, it's always there. What, what is the? So, I mean, most serial killers, and I'm not saying this guy's a serial killer, but what I'm saying is, like, most serial killers are like very charismatic. Yes, yes. They're somewhat attractive. People are drawn to them. Glib. I'll never forget yeah. that from school. Superficial. Yes. yes so yes, you yes. gotta. You know, you can't. You have to get past that. When it talks about medicine, you're gonna go under the knife. You gotta really figure out what this procedure is. And again, we've talked about it in our lumbar commentary podcast and a lot of the other podcasts that we talk about. There are rare, 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 rare cases that you have to go under the knife for your lumbar spine or for your cervical spine. Right. And and that this is not our opinion. This is a, a researched fact at this point. It is now not best practice to perform lumbar fusions for nonspecific low back pain and or think, disc replacement. I think that's coming from the AMA, obviously. Yeah, no, that's, that's standard. That's, that's, not... that's a standard. Uh, that's coming from back surgeons themselves. Right. So um, They don't want to do that anymore because the results are so poor and they're finding out that there has to be a serious complication in the body and or an accident for it to be done. You know, right, you yeah. can't just you can't just do it because you have nonspecific low back pain. Even people who have a radiculopathy, pain going down the leg, unless you have neuro symptoms and we're talking neuro weakness, dropped foot, dropped foot, bowel and bladder control problems, <clears throat> then you don't need to go yeah, you don't need to go under the knife. No, I mean and I was gonna say for the public, you know, what what would be the criteria for surgery in those cases? Some kind of, uh, as Lee said, an accident in which maybe there's a, a some kind of a burst fracture to a lumbar spine, maybe some kind of instability on the ligament that got torn off. Again, rare cases. When we're talking about the good old, the average lower back lower back flare up, or when someone's quote back goes out, mm-hmm. um, that usually passes in a few days. These aren't. These aren't situations that require surgery. Now, I do understand on a from a patient's perspective, maybe it's they're maybe they're dealing with this back pain for a few months. Maybe they're dealing with it for a year. Maybe they're dealing with a couple of years and they do want some kind of quote resolution. Surgery is is typically not the best resolution. Not best. It's it's, it's the last it's the last it's, it's the last line of defense right. and you have to fulfill a criteria and to fulfill that criteria if you want to have a good outcome, if you want the chances to have a good outcome, then you'd have to have those neurosymptoms to, right. to to begin with. And usually those neurosymptoms, what you just listed off, 
they rarely come without a tragic accident. Correct. So that's the other thing that blew my mind. After I listened to this podcast, it just reinforced this thought in my head where I've heard this from so many patients who've gone under the knife either for their neck or their low back. And the surgeon and or previous doctors had told them, if you don't get this surgery, you're at risk to become a paraplegic or a tetraplegic. And I've heard that many times. And it's really scary. So we've worked with patients who are both paraplegics and tetraplegics for several years. Can you think of one that was like, oh, I just spontaneously became a paraplegic? No way. There was zero. Traumatic injury. Always, a hundred percent of the time. And I can't tell you that enough. I mean, this is so important for, I think, the general public to hear because they, they think it's the only option. You know, they usually, I, I, the majority of time I get patients who are coming from, you know, this is not all the cases, but I say the majority, they get the, all right, I either have pain, I try two weeks of PT and I get a steroid injection and the next thing is surgery if I don't feel better. Well, that's, that's not, that's not how it goes. It, then you're setting yourself up for a whole new cycle of events to happen. Right. And, and, and again, surgery, whether, you know, any surgical procedure where, you know, you put in, you know, put under comes with a whole list of, um, risks, you know, and, um, yeah, but do your diligence. It's your body. If you don't take care of it, it won't take care of you. I don't know it's where true. this. I keep saying this line because of many events that have been happening in the last couple of weeks. But um, where the hell? Where, if you don't take care of your body, your body I said won't. that. There you know, you did. <laughs> I don't know who's gonna claim. I'm gonna have to Google and figure I'm it out. Kidding. But it was. Um, I don't know. That's Lee. <laughs> Lee Slogan. He has a shirt. I trademarked on it, it yep. and uh, don't say it without it. I'll get some Cost him fifty thousand dollars. That's right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I got something random in the mail. Uh, a tra- uh, uh, an invoice uh-huh. on to to trademark my my name of some sort and Eric uh, Munoz yeah no the uh. integrated PT uh-huh. and I was like what is this and my, it was a five thousand dollar bill and I was like no what the is fuck? someone trying to sell you the yeah and, and then I look in the fine print and it said um these are the serv- this is the service we have but this is not a bill but you know, but again I'm sure people look at it and say oh my god I'm gonna have to pay this no but um. <laughs> Yeah, that's too funny. Yeah, I also, I mean, I guess from the, from out of the last podcast, I, I consider myself a, a skeptic, as you could, as you can see from the last twenty six episodes. Mm-hmm. But I was the victim of a telephone. Oh my uh, god, I remember this, this is hilarious. A telephone IRS fraud um, in December, and um, funny moment. So, first of all, guys, the IRS never calls you. That's right. Um, but this gentleman from uh, a distant land with a heavy accent, uh, with the name, what the hell is his name? Uh, Vince Armstrong, some weird name, Anderson. Vince Anderson, Anderson something, did not sound like Anderson, said that I was, vi- I violated my taxes. Oh anyway, my long story short, uh, don't believe everything you're told. <laughs> I was caught. I was caught. It's a funny story. That's but uh, Dr. Death. Dr. Death. Check it out. It's a podcast by Wondering. It was, that's the other thing, too. It's a high production value. It's like if you listen to Radio Lab, which I love, you know, NPR, Wondering. I think it's owned by the same company. I'm not sure. And it was a cool story is because the person who narrated it, it was the first time ever doing a podcast. She's uh, a, a journalist, and they asked her to do it, and she was the one who was in Baylor, Texas, or Baylor uh, Hospital was the main hospital was taking place at, and she did the most research on it. 
And uh, military I, hospital, right? It's a military. I I think yeah, I think Baylor, Baylor is a military hospital, and I was surprised because you know Baylor PT program is so like well top notch yes. and well known, and uh, it, the way they handled the whole thing. I'm not gonna ruin it for you because it's it. I I would encourage everybody to listen to it from beginning to end, so I don't miss anything because I know I will because uh, it was a little while since I listened to it. But overall, it was it was incredible. It was the first time ever in history that a neurosurgeon was. Uh, found guilty of basically assault and attempted murder and things like that. Wow. That so was the basic it, charges. I don't want to... Yeah, you don't want to... No, no, you but, can. No, 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 but um, was it a... Was he arrested him on, like, negligence or was it premeditated? Like, they were trying to prove... Because they... Uh, some of the uh, affected... Some of the victims were older than 65. So th- there was some sort of law that said something that, like a, assault towards an, a geriatric or elderly... And that put him in the category to be like a, a, a really large charge. I mean, again, it's been a while since I listened to it, so I'm doing a really poor job. But he's behind bars, I think, at least now. And there, he's appealing the case over and over again with his attorneys. And it's crazy. You get to hear like the phone conversations he's having with his father afterward and the desperation in his voice and stuff like that. And oh, I don't be desperate. Good uh, luck. Good yeah. luck. It was scary. It wasn't. It wasn't. You weren't desperate when you were collecting that money, buddy. So. Oh yeah, and that's the other thing too. I found out they, you know, neurosurgeons are the highest paid surgeons in a, a hospital. They can make a hospital millions upon millions of dollars every year, so they're very attractive for hospitals. And I, I hear, uh, I heard from one of my clients that did have actually she did have a lumbar fusion mm-hmm. um, due to a fall down a flight of stairs and. She fractured three vertebrae, and she had some difficulty walking after that. She had to have a fusion, and she actually came into New York. I believe she had it in Columbia, Presbyterian. And she said it was performed by a neurosurgeon, and that back surgery for a neurosurgeon is is pretty easy. Right, besides the brain, you mean? Besides the brain, yeah. exactly. Oh, so, yeah. in th- you know, maybe this gentleman wasn't uh, skilled on the brain. and Well, he wasn't skilled on anything. anything right? If you listen to, like, the doctors they interviewed and what was even, I think was, from a medical standpoint is when they described exactly what they did because they went into excruciating detail medically what they did. And then the two doctors that really brought the case forward, I can't remember their names, mm. they're, uh, one of them did, did the recovery surgeries. For oh him. man! And the, there was one—you get a little snippet of him. He recorded everything. He recorded video and audio of what he was finding at the moment. I mean, I'll give you a little taste. Is that you know they went to go—he went to go do a fusion, but he apparently kept uh, drilling a, a hole for the screw into uh, the vertebra. And he didn't like it, so he did it like six different times around the same spot and oh. punctured the spinal cord and then punctured, you know, nerves here oh. and severed this. And I was, and you just hear like the nurses too that who were there were interviewed and they were like, I can't believe, you know, you, after the fourth time you see him do the same spot, you're like, what is he doing? What's going on? Like, why is he drilling again? Um, but, and then when the, the doctor talked about what he saw, it was like, it was so scary. Like he said at one point he, opened up the incision and there was literally just a screw completely loose just uh, right in his face right when he opened it up it wasn't attached to anything it was just hanging there. just a screw yeah. and then he described like a cage that was loosely attached to the side of the vertebra and 
and that unfortunately that woman was uh, now is now a paraplegic and it, it, the the pain that she described after the surgery was so intense and so awful but basically you know they were went through a huge trauma like that was like going through multiple car accidents all at once exactly. and severing the spine it was uh, awful. with consent with consent but uh, yeah. this guy on drugs, you think, or he was so he that's a whole nother part of the story. <laughs> it, 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 was it, he like not in the right state of mind to be because these, these guys have both. to he there was the nurse was in like how it opens up as they they really talk to this one nurse who uh, also helped bring the the case to light. And he describes um, Dr. Dunn showing up like 45 minutes late for his first surgery one morning, smelled of alcohol unshaven, looked unshowered, and he was wearing the same scrubs as he was wearing the week before, which had a hole in the butt, and he wasn't wearing any underwear, all this stuff, all wow. this weird stuff. Wow. And he stuff. and his eyes were dilated, I remember the nurse saying that, and so like he was probably still a little high, and it turned out he was doing cocaine and drinking a lot, and it was some pretty pretty nasty stuff. And so oh, and it, it was very, and it wasn't like once he got found out and he got banned from one hospital, like, cause apparently what they do is they like give rights to a, a surgeon to do surgery at a hospital. He was banned from that hospital. He went right to another hospital and he was able to start up surgery again. And sure enough, he did. And that happened for about a year, year and a half, I think. And, uh, it was crazy. You know, I, but, I get, you know, this day and age, obviously most doctors a lot of, most doctors practice kind of defensive medicine right and um there's so many there's so much money that they have to put in towards insurance to kind of protect themselves and their practice and i mean it sounds like he was able to dodge not you know getting this uh, this part is not the, getting his license taken away for that reason you know they it took it's a probably while. very hard for a doctor to lose his license it, it, yeah. they make mistakes i mean you know the public should know. You know doctors are human, and um, mm-hmm. there's so there are many great doctors, and you know God bless all of them that take put patients first. Um, but for those who are not good practicing, there has to be some kind of repercussion. And I, I got to listen to this. Yeah, I mean it was good. I mean that was probably the main part of what I was interested in. How it was handled by the the doctors who brought it forward to the they did it you know what would be called a typical chain of command right? right they go to the board first they report it and the board doesn't launch an investigation unless there's some pretty serious allegations so they didn't Ugh. so there is a way they said in the in the uh, story there is a way to speed it up where you can do it within days and have the license temporarily suspended right. but in his case it did not satisfy that for some reason, because they didn't have enough evidence. And so to have evidence, obviously, they'd have to have that time to do the recovery surgeries, interview the patients, all this stuff, and they couldn't present that stuff to the board immediately. They had, they had the two surgeons who certified their own opinions about what happened, and that wasn't enough. And it wasn't until um, they threatened to go to the actual uh, authorities, like the, the police department, mm-hmm. which they did, and they said they were going to investigate, but the police never did because they were like, well, we need like circumstantial evidence. Right, we right. need all this stuff. And so they don't have access, by the way. This is the the beauty of it. You know, since, you know, medical records are considered, you know, private. Right. It's I don't think it's <clears throat> easy for a police officer or a detective to say, hey, you know, we're going to 
could I take a look at your records or can I see the cameras? They can't, right. you know, it's that no, has to, that. that's probably a whole process that I'm not aware of. And they can't, I mean, this was the problem that they were encountering when they went to the authorities. They're like, did he commit murder? You know what I mean? So right, like, right. did he break the law? And then technically he wasn't, but he was also just basically maiming people right. on this, this path. And the, the, the first line of defense to stop them is obviously in the licensure. Take away the licensure for take away his hospital rights so no more patients can sign up. But sure enough, they did. And most of the patients who found out about the story who were uh, surgerized after – Right. They were so upset. Obviously, like they're like you guys knew about this for like six oh, months to hopefully eight months. They sued the board. Yeah, and I think they did. I think they brought it. Main the main cases were towards Baylor because Baylor really protected him. And yeah, you got to think of them. You know, I, I hate to be jaded in this, but our experiences with big corporations is yeah, they're gonna be protective about this. They're gonna avoid litigation. They're going to do as much much as they can not to be sued in one way or another. And by doing that. Th- they were banking on the fact that at the end they weren't going to get sued. Right. But the opposite happened in this case. And most of those people who were in charge there are no longer there. Yeah, and also, I mean, aside from the being sued, you know, no big corporation or hospital organization wants bad press. No. Because uh, it's competitive. Yeah. Um, although they're working on uh, decreasing that competition by uh, joining hands and just... Uh, Taking everything, taking everything, and just saying we're just gonna let's just let's just um, merge and yeah. control prices. But um, that's all the story. Well, that yeah, um, I mean that's kind of into this stuff. If you want to go into that, or I can talk about the course. I, I think I think we should lighten it up. <laughs> we should we should lighten it up only because it's like just talking about this. I mean, I think the moral of the story on on the Doctor Death podcast is you know as a patient. You got to ask questions. You know, yeah. it's, it's your body. And if, if I if you're in a state of mind where you may not be level headed and clear due to pain or your condition, you know, hopefully you have friends, family or it's someone that could help you with this question process. Take take a family member on a consult. Um, write down your questions prior to seeing a doctor, you know, prior to your doctor's appointment. Uh, possibly get a second opinion. Most importantly, I mean, I, I'm using my own personal experience here, but I consider myself an intuitive person. But go with your, if there's something that doesn't rub you right on this per- particular uh, doctor, or they're not kind, of, we at least here in New York City, there's a lot of options, you know. So, um, it's it, it critical that you do your diligence, you know, I mean, people do it when they purchase a home or a car or a big ticket item. You know, if you're going under the knife, especially for your spine or your, you know, you should, you should do your homework. Yeah. No, I mean, just to reiterate, like this is uh, us talking about this podcast and things that we're saying, this is an extremely rare case. I don't think this has ever happened before in the history of neurosurgeons. We're not knocking neurosurgeons at all. No, again, we hope that no one has to use, you know, I'm, I, you know, there's a couple of circumstances that I might talk about later today that, you know, in, in, in many cases, as we speak, I'm, I'm sure there's a doctor saving someone's life. Exactly. And with a surgery, with medication, with whatever, with their clinical expertise, making a judgment call. So by no means are we trying to, you know, completely knock the medical establishment because God knows that they've saved many of my family members Um you know, of late, of recently, and of, of you know, and long past. But, yes, I agree. Mm-hmm. It did, Dr. Death is a rare circumstance, but it does occur. It does. 
and uh, yeah, for low back in particular, we I mean this relates to a little bit about what we're going to go into in just a bit. Um, there there is solid research to show, and I think the percentage is as high as three percent. Three percent conditions in the low back would require surgical intervention. Wow, we're talking about like cancer talking about like burst fractures of the spine or serious fractures of the spine that is compromising the spinal cord, bowel and bladder dysfunction, dropped foot. These things, even in those cases, need to be evaluated. You need to talk to someone who is, all right, what's the quality of the nerve? Is it likely to come back? And all these other things. Um, if it's not, then you, you should ask for those statistics. Like if, for instance, if anybody were to say to me, if you like, for, I had my neck injured, right? I had that neck injured, and I had that um, disc sitting on my nerve, and I did. I had neurological weakness in my tricep and my whole arm, and I had pain for about a week. And if a doctor said to me, "You need to have surgery, or else you're going to compromise your spinal cord and possibly become a paraplegic," I would like. I would ask him or her. I'd like to see that research. I'd right. love to see it. I'd love to see some cases that that happened. And, and maybe 10 years prior, they became a paraplegic, and all of a sudden they were doing some mundane thing, and they became like, I need to see that. If it's not something you can provide, then I'm not going under the knife. Right. You know, and that's, that's something that we should be able to navigate things with all the information, Google. Um, you know, I don't, I don't particularly like the main medical websites right now because they kind of push for like, you know, good posture and all this other stuff that is kind of outdated. But, you know, it speak to, you know, there's so many professionals in that around that you could talk to and um, kind of dive deep into things. So, right. And I think uh, as you mentioned with Google, I mean, with the Internet, you know, maybe you don't live in New York City where you do have the choices, but uh, you'll have the options to reach out to others from different from from major cities like New York, maybe Miami, L.A., or some other country. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure you could find some answers out there. It's easier to communicate and, and find some options on information. Sure. And um, going back to Lee's injury, Lee Lee had a Lee's injury would have been a perfect criteria. I am guarantee if you went to uh, a certain spinal surgeon, he hit the criteria. Hey, mm-hmm. pre-existing neck stuff, weakness. Hey, we're going to do a little spinal decompression, a little laminectomy. We could decompress the disc. Maybe we'll take a little piece of the bone so it doesn't hit the nerve. And yeah. Mm-hmm. And don't, and by the way, don't move. Don't move. There's <laughs> a cervical collar. That's right. You know, <laughs> to wear this for four weeks and, um, you know, sleep, sleep sitting up in your couch, whatever. You know, I mean, right. but, uh, luckily, Lisa or a master clinician. <laughs> yeah. And I got good information too. And I talked to people and I had to compartmentalize <laughs> my own illogical emotional response to this, which everybody goes through. Absolutely. When we talk about it, it's not like when we talk about catastrophizing and, uh, you know, fear avoidance, things like that. We are not just sitting back and talking about our patients. We're talking about us, Damn too, when self, we get injury. Uh, absolutely. And, and if you go back to listen to the, there's several podcasts that we review the injury, and I said it out loud. I was scared. I was really scared because I knew what the implications were of having neurological weakness and what the, after the MRI and it showed that there was a solid hurting disc sitting on the nerve and it correlated with my symptoms. That that could mean that I needed surgery if I wanted the health of that nerve back. So I had to make a decision, and I had to evaluate over time, like, what does this mean? It's not 
It's not a, a death sentence. That's the other thing, too, I want to emphasize is when you get these this information and things are happening to you that might scare you, it's not a death sentence unless they say something like you have stage four cancer. You, you know what I mean? Yeah. And even, that, even, and even that, then. Yeah, it's... You know, um, staging cancers, um, I, I, I'm going way out of my... Yeah, I mean, uh, this is... Uh, way out of my thing, but... Yeah, I mean, there's very... Very little absolute, right? Right. We'll go back to that line. But I guess the reason why I said <laughs> yeah. I said that as an example, which right. might not be a great example, is just because when you get that information, there's there's an intervention that needs to be done right now. Right. right. Yes. So, it is. It is urgent. Yeah. Yes. And there's yes. there is a quote life or death situation going on, or like at least yeah. if you do not act on it, which has been shown in the past, like you know Steve Jobs famously, right? He had a certain form of cancer that. They knew that would respond well to uh, chemo or whatever it was the the main treatment, and he didn't mm. do it. And he, he I'm did gonna, pass. Uh, this is a perfect opportunity. I'm going to take it. Yeah. Um, so I have a close family member that <clears throat> recently had an ordeal. Let's put it that way. Um, he's not in the best. Of, wasn't in the best of shape. Diabetic. Um, arthrosclerosis. Um, uh, congestive heart failure. I, there's some. I think he has some stents in his heart. About six years ago, he had a mini stroke or TIA, um, in which the residual from it was a little cognitive, and then he kind of got out of it. Anyway, hasn't really taken care of himself, you know, uh, later in life. And uh, about I want to say about a month ago, he must have had some foot pain. Uh, <clears throat> that foot pain. And this is all second secondhand knowledge, right? Step foot pain as a diabetic, as we know as clinicians, is a serious thing. It could be a neuropathy. So anyhow, he had some kind of infection going on in his foot. Fast forward seventeen <clears throat> days ago, he goes to the hospital. His foot is dark. The doctors tell him he has an infection. They check his blood flow. They said you you don't have any blood going into a few of your toes. You know, we may, you know, we, we'll see what we can do. But if not, we may have to amputate a toe or two. So this relative is a very proud man. And he said, no way, you're not cutting anything. Do what you got to do to get the blood flowing. After which they tried to put a stent from his femoral artery, go down into the foot and increase the blood flow. Anyhow, by this point, the infection is kind of spreading. His pain is increasing. His sugar is out of control. He's in the hospital. They did the procedure four times. Oof. Four times, no blood flow. 17 days later, they had to move him into another hospital because this hospital knew that they couldn't help this, you know, this person. Last week, you know, um, went to the... Now the family's getting word. By the way, he keeps the family in the dark until the you know the family finds out. And the doctor said, "Listen, he refused treatment. Um, he's his body's getting infected. It's now spread mm. to his heel. Um, if he's not cogn cognitively, he started losing it. The doctor told the relative, "Hey, um, he refused the amputation." We're going to put him in hospice. And that was when the family member got a little wild and said, no way, take off his foot. Um, 
woke him up somehow. And, you know, moral of the story, from not heeding to medical advice, doctors told him, take a few toes off. He now, you know, had a below-the-knee amputation, which is what it sounds like. Um, you know, immediately after the amputation, uh, I would say within 24 hours, his white blood, you know, white blood cell went down. His blood, you know, he started stabilizing. He started kind of coming, you know, getting a little more conscious. Mm-hmm. You know, it, this is a very traumatic situation, and I mean, as as hard, you know, as hard as it is for my family and all, you know, I I kind of perfect example of you know one. You know, taking care of your body or it won't take care of you, um, <laughs> Lee's line. Uh, <laughs> secondly, um, you know, when when doctors kind of give you the statistics, because that was another thing. They gave mm. them the statistics. Hey, this is what's going on. You know, you have other complications. Oh, dialysis, his kidneys were failing. Oh, that's bad. His, you know, I, I, systemically, you know, he was in a bad place. And he's still not totally out of, the you know, the woods. But point of this story to the public is really, I mean, one, take care of yourself so you're not in that circumstance. Um, But there's certain surgical procedures that are grave. Like you just said, like, hey, you got all these complications. You got to make a decision. Um, It may not be a pleasant one, but so, I mean, it's much more complicated than my my quick and dirty story of it, but I think Mm. um, it goes into what you were just saying, Mm -hmm. right? So... Anyhow, um, take care of yourself, guys. You know, yeah. it's um, there's just so many options out there, and it starts with some small decisions that you know kind of snowball, and you know, good or bad, it it could get that ugly. Yeah, you know? and uh, I mean, somewhat goes into the course that I took recently because they talk about, um, you know, when you're faced with patients. You know, just going back to like patients with pain, you know, they no longer really, they, they don't want to say chronic pain anymore. They want to say persistent pain. Oh, I so, like that. Yeah, I think it's a lot more, uh, it's easier to deal with. And also if you say to someone like chronic you. Chronic sounds like it's done. And like, it's bad. It's like, chronic. it's got a negative connotation like. Uh, COPD. Or what was the thing that Elliot kept saying over and over again? Necrosis. Necrosis? Necrosis. Necrosis. Uh, so that all sounds bad. So who, wait, 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 wait. Who said Necrosis? Who Elliot Lindy when he was on. What, what was he? He how, how did he come up though? He he was talking about his injury. In, uh, and by the way, go back to that podcast. It's hilarious. It's one of our uh, one of our friends. friends our first and, ca- one of he was one of our first. Yeah, yeah second. Um, but he was also a former patient of ours, and he talked. What about was Necrotic? Stuff. What was? I don't think anything was, but I think one of the doctors told him if he does not take care of his hip, it can develop into like. <sighs> Osteonecrosis, avascular necrosis, um, and then he was, and he looked up. Of course, he's a smart guy. He looked up necrosis. He's like bone death. Yes. Like what the hell? Necrosis is exactly what the damn family member was going. Yeah, yeah, there you it go. is. It's it's ugly. Ne- necrosis is necrosis and chronic do sound very similar. Yeah, and it doesn't it doesn't ring well with the brain. So persistent pain is what we try to use. And uh, the course that I took was called. Um, uh, reconciling biomechanics with pain science by Greg Lehman. And he is a Canadian and he's a chiropractor and a physical therapist. And he's really making waves in my opinion. He's very humble about it. And, uh, I thought it was probably one of the best courses I've ever taken since wow. we graduated school nine, ten years ago. 
That's a big and, claim. Lee has taken many courses. So, no, <laughs> serious, man. Well, PT courses, I no, guess. No, no, uh, even no. It's yeah. I'm sad. I, I wasn't get. I didn't get oh, in. Oh, he'll be going. back. I mean, I mean, he he'll, he has he's all over there. You know, he has multiple courses in a year, and um, I liked him mm. one because uh, he's very entertaining. He's extremely smart. He curses a lot, which I love. Because, I don't know, to me, it's very familiar from Massachusetts. We're a bunch of assholes. No, I'm just kidding. Nah. Um, but, um, <laughs> Not today. You guys are no. enjoying enjoying the Super Bowl win. That's right. Uh, uh, weird game, man. Such uh, a low-scoring game. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, no. So he, th- what he really did in such a great way was he took this massive amount of information that's been coming out in the last even 30 years. He brought like, We have access to all the research that he keeps on a drive. So when you take a course of his... He gives you access to this drive, and you can contribute to it. You can wow. read to it. Constantly changes, um, and it's literally research for the last thirty years. Some of it's his research, but a lot of it is like the main stuff about tendinopathies, herniated discs, um, all this stuff about low back pain, you know, persistent pain in general, stuff like that. It was, it was fantastic, but you know, I won't go too deep into it. But the overall theme was, you know, how do you deal or how do you manage a patient? that presents to you with persistent pain and they get caught up in this kind of myth and uh, misinformation that's out there now about, let's say, a posture and this extreme biomechanical model that ignores everything else. And he had a great methods to do it. You know, it's, he talked about cognitive restructuring. Um, he has a saying, you know, calm shit down, build shit back up. Like that's the basic theme of every rehab program ever, which is absolutely true. And he dove into neuroscience with nociception. Um, and I thought it was great. And, and it really kind of, um, if, at least for me, it, because we keep talking about this biopsychosocial model that it should be the mainstream. It shouldn't be like a separate thing anymore, but unfortunately it is. And how to really implement it. There's all these systems out there. You know, he's got some options, but he, he takes a little bit from here and here and he admits it. You know, you've got David Butler who's got his uh, dims and sims and yes. protectometer, and that's another method. Um, great emoted imagery and all these other things. So there's a lot of different things you could do, but it really depends on how the patient responds to it. But I think the most important thing is is kind of knowing the information front and back. And the information that he talked about is the research on well, not a lot of stuff, but I'll I'll zero in on the lumbar stuff. You know, this this idea of of flexion is the enemy of the spine and how flexion and rotation will herniate a disc. And he he's like, you you got to understand, for the general public to hear this, they'll just say, you know, the line of the study, and they'll say, like, you know, a certain amount of flexions will cause a herniated disc. Sure, on a cadaver, oh, yeah. on a dead disc, you know, there's no other tissue around it, and you're just flexing the spine over and over again. There's no other movement, and it's one segment so imagine you can't you can't make this carryover to uh, it's going to happen when you bend over to pick up a sock. There's no way in hell. It doesn't make any sense. And so it was fantastic. He had dozens of studies that measured um, you know how we control quote neutral spine in dirt, certain lifts. Hmm. And, he, and he, he had there's not one study that proves that we can maintain neutral in the lumbar spine. So it was fascinating because if anyone ever tells you like, oh, if you don't maintain neutral spine of your lumbar spine, you're going to herniate a disc or hurt your back when you do a lift is full of shit and or doesn't know the research. So the research 
when they measure that, they actually have to put little accelerometers from the base of the spine to the top of the lumbar, uh, like T12 or L1, right? right? And so then they measure the difference between the two. And guess what happens with every lift, even this hyperextended lift, when they go down to like a deadlift, squat, stoop squat, anything? Guess what happens? It flexes? They always flex. There's always flexion. Always. Whether when it the trunk, be... When the trunk moves forward. It has to flex. Right. It has to. And so they, what was great is he showed um, this really strong study that was done all, the, all in these uh, really young individuals, and they had a lot of, quote, mobility in their spine. And so they gave them... You know, two opposing cues, like the over, hyper extended position from the thoracic spine and then the kind of the stoop position. There was very little difference. There was not a significant difference between the angles, the load. which is insane because you would look at the picture because they would show pictures and you would see this hyper extended position. And he's like, you guys have to understand this is like an illusion for us. And so that's what, you know, when you hear a lot of these pain science individuals talk about you know, how um, uh, our brains don't process information correctly or extremely accurately because we have so many biases, right? Right. And the reason why they keep talking about that, whether it's what we hear, what we see, and what we feel with our hands, is because things like this have to be taken into account. So when you look at a hyperextended spine, my brain says, as a you know physical therapist and a trainer, I was like, he's keeping his spine neutral. So then it changes what I'm seeing. It absolutely does. It changes what I see. And so what's actually happening, what's being measured by those things, that's the only way to measure unless we, like, take this person apart. Yeah, cut they, all the fat and then muscle away and then, oh, there, there's their spine. Right. It's impossible. Actually. It's impossible. So, it, it, you know, you have to look at this stuff with scrutiny. And, again, this stuff is going to change, you know, the what you learn. And it's fine. Like, I guess what bothers me the most is that, you know, there there's some – um, practitioners that I, I, I see on a regular basis that are really still touting this information and they say it with such certainty and then it passes on to the patient with such certainty that eventually that's going to come back around. So I was going to, you know, in this mentioning of this course, I would say to my fellow clinicians, what train do you want to be on? Do you want to be on this continuous thing that seems to be reinforcing disability among patients that's, who that's gives them more information and I'm sorry, gives them uh, a greater emphasis on their biomechanics and ignores everything else about their body or do you want to their minds and their minds yeah. and or do you want to be on this train that you can start to learn more about that encompasses the entire body that people are studying right now that it's only going to get stronger and stronger in terms of what we know. And it still, it, by the way, it still incorporates biomechanics, but it doesn't put 100% of what's causing your pain. It takes it as what it needs to be. All right, so this is what we know about the research. This is what we know that contributes to pain. This is what we know that contributes to disability. And the rate of injury is going to be nil if I just watch your lumbar spine and say, if you breathe like this, if you keep your lumbar spine like this, you won't get injured. How do they sleep? How do they feel about stress? Are they going through a life event right now? How many times have they done this movement? Are they fearful of this movement? Right. That has more to do with whether or not they're going to, quote, get injured or be in pain. Yeah, so I mean, it's, it, it's pretty wild that, you know, I hear this on a probably, on a, I would say daily basis mm -hmm. on kind of like um, people that have seen all the therapists, all the doctors, you know, and they have these rules. Well, you know, I never really, I always bend my knees. Always bend my knees, you know. I, I when I get out of bed, I, I kind of log roll out of bed. <laughs> um, deadlifts are bad. 
Mm-hmm. No, you know, bending, lifting, twisting, right? The r- you know, basic rules there. If you twist, herniate. And I hear this, and they do say it with certain, but the, the, the common theme I see and hear and feel amongst patients is what you just said is fear. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it was, unfortunately, you, you talk about disability, but it was like, it's kind of a learned disability. Because, mm-hmm. yeah, maybe they did have a back injury, but as Lee said, maybe it had nothing. To, I mean, no one took a look at the other factors, the fact that they had poor nutrition, the fact that they had poor sleep, the fact that they've been stressed out, the fact that they had faulty movement patterns, which is a whole other thing. But mm-hmm. none of those in isolation are going to be the causative of, of back pain. But as we know, it's it's a complex mirage, you know, mirage of, of a lot of different stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do, it's a common theme that I work against and I watch how hard I push back on that because some of these beliefs have been there for, for decades. Um, but I guess the challenge, and we always have this, this chat <laughs> multiple times, the challenge is how do you tailor, as a clinician, how do you tailor your message to your patient? Do you go right into the fire with them and, and challenge that belief? Mm-hmm. Or do you let them challenge it on themselves? Or do you trick them a little? Do you do you do a little, what is it, Waddell? Type, the, <laughs> Waddell? Yeah, type? Well, you know. No. No, I mean, that's a whole other level, right? Yeah. But You want to reduce uh, catastrophizing as much as possible. Because yeah. when you do Waddell's, you're like, no, you're not in pain because I just watched you do this. Thing. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I'm like, you're what? Like, you don't so believe crazy. me, I'm crazy, yeah. right? This is all in my head. No, but this. Oh, so, uh, yeah, no, so I mean that. That's also after I took this course, I, I hear that so much because when I I even use these techniques right after the course with some patients, right? And then one of the first things, because uh, you know New York is is unique in this sense, and I I do believe that like New York patients, the the, the they have a certain intensity, oh. certain intensity, and so they get very defensive. Even when you're not even being aggressive, you're just providing information. They just walk in defensive. They're just oh, defensive. Yeah. They're, they're just... ready. They're just like ready to go. And 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 you could just be a target, or you shouldn't. You know, right. whatever. But I, I I've heard this so many times. So you're, it's all in my head, and and I'll immediately say, you know, uh, no, it's not. It every everything is a hundred percent real. You know, your pain is a hundred percent real. The love for your child is 100% mm-hmm. real. It's the same kind of feeling that you get for your love of your wife, the love of your husband, for the happiness that you feel to see someone succeed that you care for. That's the same exact thing that's in your head. That's the same exact thing with, with pain. It's just a feeling. There's a biochemical response. There is a psychosocial response. And you have to put everything together. You can't just that's say... A good, that's a good analogy. That's, yeah. I like that. That's and so and what he, a great example that he made was like, okay... If you cut, you have a cut on your skin and you pour vinegar on it. It hurts. <laughs> did you damage the skin more by pouring vinegar on it? No, you just increased that sensation. You you you, you caused a chemical reaction. You, we have our neuro, our, our nociception or our pain is based on mechanical, chemical, and temperature, right? So the the, the chemical part of it is that that in, occurs inside the body, around the spine for sure. There's uh, increased chemical, uh, increased cellular movement that will cause uh, increased nociception when there's, quote, a danger area, right? And so that's all part of the inflammatory process and or is this part of the body's response to that danger area. And then you have the mechanical response, compression, rotation, and then you have the temperature response that some people apparently argue that there's an increased heat in those areas. Mm-hmm. So... Is that from Eastern Medicine or that? No, he, this, uh, is, this is, apparent, this is right. some research. He, he listed off all the researchers. I, I can't really pull it up cool. now, but... Um, That's really like almost very similar, though, right? Like a trap 
of heat or well so they 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 don't know if there's like because of increased cellular movement it causes friction that increases heat to the area it's like a swelling situation right wow that's pretty cool and or like you know we have the most receptors in our skin i believe right yes yes yes, yes. so when the skin gets sensitized which is directly connected to the nervous system apparently that increases or sorry, it decreases their threshold to stimuli. So then all of a sudden, they'll be more responsive to like, let's say pressure, they'll be more responsive to temperature, things like that. And so they'll they'll change as well, be more active, less active. Right. So it's, it's all really interesting stuff. But I guess the overall theme I would say is, you know, to even begin to talk about pain, it's so complex. Don't just immediately jump to, I have a herniated disc, I have pain, I need surgery. Like that's what is usually the case. And that I think that's the biggest challenge for us is that we have a, a patient who will come to us who's obviously in pain and are, is usually not thinking in the most logistical manner and have has a lot of um, prior beliefs, you know, have a lot of other things that come to us and we have to sit there and mitigate those things to see and decide what, what kind of information can we give them right now? Right. What can they handle? What, what can they use right now that's going to help them? And sometimes, you know, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, 60 minutes is not enough. Like, they, they, you know, we learned this stuff over the course of three years, an intensive program in terms of biomechanics. Oh, sure. And then now we're, we're kind of restructuring what we're learning. So, like, I can't even imagine if someone doesn't have any training in anatomy and physiology, and then you start to talk in these terms, then it's like black and white. Like, oh, all I right. get it. I feel better. No, you yeah. know, you're right. Yeah, I could I could pick up this pen with no problem. I deadlift <laughs> should be fine tomorrow. Cool. Thank you, Lee. I'll I'm call you out. for I mean, life. <laughs> no, it, it, but it tailoring and Lee hit it, you know, Lee hit a lot of key points of understanding the, the pop, you know, the person you're working with. And aside from their, um, their condition, they're coming to see you, you know, what, what motivates this person? You know, we had a, uh, a mentor that hopefully we'll have on here, you know, at some point, mm-hmm. um, but had a, a skill in the ability to pull, tease out of his patients in a very short amount of time, yeah. what they value, you know, mm-hmm. what makes them tick. Are they a, are they a finance cut and dry numbers person that needs a very specific treatment plan and homework? Are they an artsy type where they want to gather their information different? And then he would tailor his, uh, his message based on that. Mm-hmm. And I think as clinicians, we all need to have that tool to kind of tease out how am I going to deliver this message? And as Lee said, you know, an hour, five hours, 10 hours, may, you know, may not be enough, but no. the ability to, and this, you know, this comes from a, a client, a patient retention thing in a, in a positive way is, you know, letting the person know what the, the prognosis will be um, is is the biggest challenge for any clinician, and it's the most common question. Hey, I hate to ask this, but what do you think? How long is this going to take? Mm-hmm. And um, with this persistent pain that they're experiencing, you got to ask them. All right, you've been in X pain, you know, X place for two years. It's going to take some time to restructure stuff, but it it begins and ends with perspective and mindset. Yes. And, um, uh, you know, this is a, a common theme amongst a lot of things in life, but it, it really, you know, a per- person has to take that in consideration. Like, wow, you know, I have been thinking like X. I have been fearful of tying my shoes for the last year. Mm-hmm. So it, it's really interesting stuff. Does, um, at the course where they're, you know, so you were able to kind of apply stuff 
real time, right? Right yeah. after he, uh, right after I did, and then he, well, he would do. He has break up into groups, and we did little cases, and oh, so he, he gave us like a, uh, a, a. There was a lot of tendinop- tendinopathy information, which I really loved. And he's it's a tough. It's a tough. Uh, it's a very tough condition to treat. It is, and um, he gave us cases like, let's say, if you have a runner who is doing running a 10k and they get you know pain in their tendon da, da, da. and so he's like what would you do for 12 weeks and then you would go over certain things so that was more about the portion of the course when he talked about how important load is for the body and so it fed back to the pain science because people are very fearful of doing exercise through pain and or loading what they think is an injured tissue so let's say if you have an Achilles tendinopathy for instance and um you you don't have any like let's secondary signs or anything that's like kind of danger and they can run a 10k and they're getting pain around three miles so that's pretty good I mean they're they're able to run up to three miles and it only hurts when they squeeze it uh, they're a little weaker on that side a little weaker in the hips so of course you're going to get them try to get them stronger in the hips and in the actual uh, tendon itself but what he talked about he's like you can either do like, an exposure program. Or an avoidance program, right? So an avoidance program would be have them take a break from running and just work on other things that kind of mimic the running. Um, like offloaded. Like an offloaded. Got it, it. Exactly, yeah. And then you're also training the nervous system, right? Because the nervous system has now kind of created a little marker around that tendon. It's increased saying like, all right, something going on there. There's pain there. I went, You went and saw the doctor. They told you something's wrong. So that enhanced the marker. And now you, you don't want to put you know, movement through there or load through it, right? So basically the opposite. And he had a, a funny joke. It was very uh, naturopathic of him. Basically, you, you treat with the poison. And so mm-hmm. what, what actually injured the tendon was the load. So now we're going to load it to heal it back up. So I thought that was interesting because, you know, tendons respond very well with load under the appropriate circumstances, but they don't do well under, uh, I think it's, he wrote here, compression. Um, I think stretch is also... Not a good thing, right? I mean, yeah, well, I think some of it is. I'm trying to think. The, there was like three three main things. But basically, you want to you wanna address the biopsychosocial thing by saying like, listen, if we don't load this tendon, it's going to continue in this manner until it gets worse and, and not get as resilient as it could. And so um, on the avoidance part, like you would stop running, do other things that mimic it, and then gradually get back into running along with getting their hips stronger and other things like that. So it's very simple stuff, but also what's complex about it and powerful is that you you take everything into account and you're building them up for a long-term success. So you're obviously, like we've always said in this podcast, we're building you up in the beginning of the program to see us less. Correct. And yeah. we, we don't, I don't, it's not necessary to have PT for years for the same condition if you're given the right information, you should be given pieces. You should be given by the therapist pieces of information that are going to help you long term and give you strategies for for health. You know, for everything. Right. And now, if someone is quote seeing a physical therapist regularly um, for a quote more of a recovery tool, more of a yeah, I would say a recovery from whatever physical activity you're doing. Different story. But if you're mm-hmm. talking about treating a tendinopathy for 12 months and just kind of driving at that and not really doing anything else but getting treated that that's not that's not a sustainable i mean what that's not doing much for the patient long term mm-hmm. at all uh if anything it's building dependency and kind of reinforcing that they can't do things on their own so mm-hmm. uh 
totally different story. But again, there are many individuals, especially here in New York, that um, that like um, they like getting the manual work done. They like getting quote a tune up, you know, and and that's fine for those reasons. But as Lee just mentioned, treating a you know, treating a person, and and again, it's the model that that it's, it's the model, you know, it's yeah. the model. Hey, you're gonna be here for. Six to eight weeks. You're going to see us two to three times a week. We're going to ultrasound you. We're going to put some heat on you. <laughs> You'll play with the AIDS. You know? Uh, yeah. No, I mean, that's the typical thing. And that's what everyone says. Like, it's all, it's everywhere. You watch TV, movies, you know, you talk to your doctors. That's what their perception of, of PT is. And that's fine. And, he, and there was a, there, there was one student there, a PT student. And he asked that question. He's like, what, what if, I don't know, actually, it wasn't him who asked it. It was another PT. What if they they come to you and they're like they're expecting this manual therapy, right. and you give them this information and you you say to them, you know, the manual therapy isn't having an effect that you think it is, right? Right. So he had a he had a, his own patient case that he he was pretty strong on it in the sense that like he had a patient who come in and um he the patient didn't want to hear this information about like what it, it actually is doing. He just wanted him to work on him and him being a chiropractor, he wanted like a, a minute on his neck and stuff like that. And so he, he's this, he's in a, in my opinion, Greg Laming was in a position where he could say, well, I'm probably not the best practitioner for you to work with. Right. And that's great. I mean, but it, it's, it is tricky. Mm-hmm. And how I handle it is, cause again, I still do manual therapy. And if I get asked about what I'm doing, or if I'm doing that initial appointment and I let them know what we're doing, I, I explain it the same way. I said, right now, your nervous system is kind of giving us, uh, it's almost pointing in this area and, and giving us more attention, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, me doing the manual therapy is going to help, not the entire time that we're going to do therapy together, but in the beginning, it's going to help kind of relieve that attention. It's going to try to take it away a little bit and get you adjusted to movement in that area. Because right now, you don't want to move that well in that area, and maybe having some sort of external stimuli will help you. And some people respond better than others in a sense in terms of their understanding or what they tell me that they understand. But some people don't, and some people are just, they, they, they are really locked on that they need to be worked on every time. And I'll explain to them long term, like, I'll do my best, you know, after a couple of times, I'd be like, well, is this long term, is this helping? Because you say you feel better after the treatment and then it comes back, right? Well, if we handle this, if if you think that this is going to change long term how your condition is doing, then, it, you know, it, that's incorrect. So you, you have mm-hmm. to you have to kind of walk the line a little bit with it and it, I feel like that's probably the toughest thing but if you at least try to have the conversation with it you'll plant a little seed and you should be able to plant a little seed and they'll, they'll have to think about it for a little while and they might come back to you later and say like oh okay I get it now or like tell me more about that I'm curious about that what about um so so for the most part he doesn't he doesn't not as he doesn't believe in manual but he does little manual therapy during his practice. It's all movement-based stuff or patient education. He does, yeah. No, it's a good question. I think someone else asked him that. I think he, he said that he's not hardcore against manual therapy as a lot of other practitioners are who teach this stuff. He does do manual therapy, but he said he attempts to tell them that it's more for greater graded movement exposure 
than anything else. And so, like, he definitely won't yeah, do a long term. That's, that's, good. that's um, very cool. He was a big proponent of the mulligan technique. He he thought that was fantastic because that's literally your like. Let's he, the best example is the shoulder, right? You have pain not here but here, and then the mulligan is sitting there. You, you provide pressure, provide pressure. So, what does your brain think you're doing? You're like, oh, it's support. You know, a little bit of load, and then you hold it over pressure without pain. So that's, again, changing the nervous system's perspective of that movement. And then you do it over and over again. So now you have a plastic change. Repeated exposure. Repeated exposure, and you're doing the same thing. And he talked about, like, PNF is exactly the same way. You're basically taking the painful movement, and you're grading it. You're going slowly. Let's say if that pain raising their knee uh, from standing, lie them on their side. Then you do a little contract, relax on their side into hip flexion. And then you have them sit up, contract, relax, and da da da. And then you stand up. So you're doing that graded exposure. But so that's what's always, you know, when I hear this stuff, it's so, it's so simple. But that makes sense, you know, based yeah, on the, the patients that we see and the years that we've been treating patients. Because there's always been these patients when we were pure biomechanical therapists. You're just like Jesus. Why aren't they responding to this? They're like I'm doing the exact same thing that worked magic on so and so, but now this person, they they they're they're not even getting an inkling of improvement. And so it was like there was always these cases. And I watched the same thing with my CIs, and and you know my CIs were extremely talented manipulative therapists, and I would watch them do the exact same thing. And the the common thing that I observed is the patients that didn't responded didn't respond had these ex- extenuating circumstances they had life events they were highly stressed they were more fearful of movement and they were very they were perseverating on everything and so like oh there something else is going on is that contributing to the symptoms i don't know i don't know how to explain that but now there's some sort of inkling of of uh, evidence there and i guess reflecting on this course i also think about the therapists who are coming out now who are new who really kind of do this to the this pain science information and they don't want to listen to it i'm like "Mm, you guys haven't seen enough patients yet right you haven't you haven't seen the the ups and downs of treating human beings because human beings are not just biomechanical we're not just models we're not just machines we're we're like a huge system that is really dictated by our brain and our nervous system and an open system at that so that that can be entered a lot of different ways um but It's interesting when you said, like, with a new grad not being, not being able to fully understand pain science. I mean, when it when it comes out a new grad or someone that hasn't been exposed to this, it is a bit of a shock because it's kind of, kind of flips everything, and it's hard to kind of conceptualize yourself because mm-hmm. it's kind of easy. Well, not easy. It's nice to have a framework in which you know a plus. B equals C kind of. It's comforting. It's very comforting. And unfortunately, life's not comfortable, guys. No, it definitely is not. And if it is, get a little more uncomfortable. Yeah. Because eventually, some point, (laughs) something's going to be uncomfortable. So, so, Get punched in the face. Get kicked in the face. Oh, God. Have a beer. Take a shot. I'm going to go on a tangent. (laughs) It's going to only take 10 seconds. Mike Tyson. Oh, Oh, Mike Tyson. Oh, my God. God. The uh, Joe Rogan or oh, documentary? The Joe Rogan. I'm going to see the documentary. And I, this guy has, has his own podcast, I think, too. Uh, Tyson? Though? Tyson got oh, his I own. didn't know that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little wild. Uh, I'll let the lay. It's a different demographic. But yeah. um, I would say. Yeah, He's getting into the stuff. weed business. 
He's getting yeah. You hear about this? Him. He's gonna he's gonna be in Colorado or in, in I think, I think Cali. Cali. Mm-hmm. Wow. But yeah, everybody has a plan till they get punched in the face. That's right. But I think um, the com you know being comfortable. I mean, look, the information it's 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 uncomfortable to have this conversation with the patient that is very set in their ways and 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 in pain and saying, hey, that's great. It's you know, uh, yeah, that's great. But how the hell are you going to help me now? Right. Um, so the challenge is out there, but I think there's a lot of tools out there. Uh, whether you mentioned a lot from Butler. And again, it's, it is an art, guys. There isn't going to be a, um, there isn't a script to read. No. Um, because each patient is going to be able to process this inf- information a little differently. And you, and you really don't want to be offending your referral sources, mm-hmm. your, your patients in, in general, you know, so you got to be very delicate on how you deliver this kind of information. But if you could create a perceptual shift in your client, that that's patient client it's um it's what you're looking for yeah and uh, think about it like this if you're very uncomfortable learning about this stuff just imagine what's going to happen to this patient five years down the line you know this is what we do know this is what we don't know so um if you continue to push the biomechanical model only and you you give them more strategies for catastrophizing and fear then you're going to build more disability in their movement patterns. And that has been a studied fact. And, and it's nothing against a biomechanical model. It's give us, it gives us a baseline. It's, we still need to use it. We still need to do biomechanics. We have to do biomechanical analysis, see how the body's moving, but it has to be in conjunction with how are they thinking about these movements or how are they responding to um, certain loads? And you have to put everything together. It's a hard thing to do, but this is this is the challenge that we're faced with, and this is a prime opportunity right now because of the information that's coming out about pain science, but also about things like opioids and uh, pain medication. Uh, what and, about what about the article? Uh, I think you posted it. Um, the gene thing. The gene thing, and also the talking. Excuse me. The, wor- the words matter kind of thing from the doctors, and mm-hmm. I mean we've talked about this at length, but they've been couple of articles recently speaking about uh, doctors' choice of words affecting outcomes. I know we spoke about it at length, but again, New York Times, I would say late December, had a big article on it um, and how they're kind of, doctors are kind of watching their language. Yeah. And um, that also has a huge, huge implications on, on what's going, what we're talking about. Again, we've Definitely. spoken about it at length, but... Yeah. Good stuff, guys. Yeah. Uh, Greg Lehman. I, that, good stuff. Yeah, he's one. So if you're looking to take any of these courses, uh, Lehman, Lehman. Greg Lehman, Adam Meekins is another one. I have not taken his course, but I am going to. And he has yet to come to New York, I think. Uh, but he's been to D.C., so I might go to D.C. And I, I might even go over in Europe because he's mainly in the U.K. That's where he's from. Uh, I really like his stuff. Cool stuff. Yeah, he, he seems to specialize in um, shoulders, and but he, he incorporates pain science. He's a little bit more hardcore against manual therapy Absolutely. from what I read on Twitter. Um, but it was, you know, I think he, he's in the same line with uh, all these other guys. But we were talking a little bit about, like, you know, what are what are some solutions to our issues with health insurance and physical therapy here in the United States? And one thing that crossed my mind is, like, after meeting uh, or listening to Greg Lehman is that 
there should be a board, you know, with these guys and girls who would basically judge physical therapy clinics and put like a little rating on them, right? So oh, that's great. Imagine if you have Greg Lehman, Adam Meekins, uh, David Butler, Peter O'Sullivan, Lormir Mosley, and whoever else you could think of. And they're kind of like these leaders right now who are going around the world doing not only have they ha- they have research to back up their stuff, meaning they've all done their own research. That was one thing that these guys talk about was like, you know, you on social media, it's really exposed these self-proclaimed geniuses who just is like, oh, and then this is it. Like you have to wa- watch your posture and da, 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 da. And they, they don't have anything to do with research. And like they create their own systems, their own institutes and all this other crap. And I was like, that's so true. Like, you know, if you're going to proclaim some system that you created based on what you read biomechanically and this is how you're going to treat everybody and you're saying like I'm the guy to go to with orthotics or whatever it is, then you better have some stuff to back it up that you did. <laughs> and I'm not going to just take your opinion about it, you know, the you know decades of patients. It's wild how the public pays for it though. Yeah. Um, you just said it. I mean, we are Obviously, we have a background in research, right? I mean, that's a large part of our degree was in, you know, research. But it's wild the claims people could make. Uh, recently, one of our guests, uh, I'm sure that you heard, uh, was on Fox Fox News Who talking about celery juice. Sarah. Oh yeah, I saw that. Yeah. yeah. So, so celery. She wanted, <laughs> I got. That's another show, but, segment, but but you know, again, it was you know the the dietitian versus the kind of the Instagram person, the person that says that you know I had you know low energy and acne, and I drank some celery juice, and three weeks later, it's great. I've heard stories of people having Lyme disease and all kind of ailments that are cured with celery disease. And it's like, oh, really? So who are these people? And Mm. where's, again, the research. So, you know, understand we live in a a land where facts could be alternative facts, right? So, I mean, not to go on a political tangent, but, yeah, this is a time where information is is abundant. Mm -hmm. And it, it really... We got to be diligent as uh, consumers of this information to kind of screen where, where it's coming from. Yeah, uh, no, whether it's celery juice <laughs> or posture or spinal surgery. Yeah, you know? and the reason why we do that, by the way, you you might say like, well, Lee and Eric, you guys say like, you know, you make fun of the research, and we have to have everything to back up what we say. We understand that, but we're not the ones saying like, all right, we've created our own system. Right. And it's based on our just our experience with patients, and we want everyone to buy our book. And based on our system, we're trying to collect information about systems. That's mm-hmm. what we're doing, and right. we're also saying that the scientific method is the best thing we got right now. Right. And the scientific method should be explored if you're going to start to say, "I have a system now, and I'm going to promote it, and it's the only thing that works." Yeah, and I think you know I've been uh, I'm of the school of thought that. I might have a quote system that I go through, but that's a that's a collage of hundreds, hundreds, all types of systems and people yeah. and and experience and and it's still it's still evolving, you know. And it, hopefully, it never stops evolving. I it shouldn't. I mean, if, mm-hmm. if but as Lee said, I mean to kind of create to have a singular view perspective because there's all types of bias to that you know we know yeah. we and that's know. the main thing it's people who understand bias so like if you if you say these claims 
then you know I know a dozen practitioners who are just saying like you know this is how I feel about what your condition is and, and they don't understand bias which is really strange if you've gone through the schooling we learn about bias in school we learn about all these things that's the main thing that's going to separate your patient caseload from the control group that was in the study and the you know control a group or whatever you know it's it's just you have to take into account these things uh Craig Liebenson is another individual. Um, he he believes this as well, and he's a, a well-known chiropractor who actually came to New York Sports Med once and yeah. did a, a quick thing from, uh, I think it was Daniel, what's his name, brought him over. Yeah, for I, the remember, I remember um, I remember the course well. It was cool. You know, yeah. he, he went over some basic core, hip, stabe stuff, but he's very movement-based, right? I mean, he's movement all movement-based. But he has a quote saying, like, don't become an expert in one thing. Become... Uh, I'm obviously butchering the quote, but like basically learn as many system as systems as you can. And I totally agree with that. You know, you shouldn't be like an expert in one system only, like just a McKenzie therapist or just an IOM. Like you should understand what are the basis of these systems and how does it relate to what you see and how does it relate to what you can do with patients, like your, your exposure to things. Yeah. Cause with each system, there's, there's a, kind of an operational bias right i mean mm-hmm. it, in order for it to work you kind of jam you kind of jam in certain circumstances or situations to fit the system and um again humans i mean it sounds so cliche but we're all different you know and different. all different entry points so having different systems you have different tools i mean we've mul- we've mentioned this on multiple podcasts but it, it's really you know for all you clinicians out there that are just getting started you know, you got to kind of be a beast about continuing ed and mm-hmm. and looking in little nooks and crannies that may kind of seem, uh, you know, count uncomfortable <laughs> counterculture in some extent. You know, yeah. but check it out, see see how it kind of fits into your practice and even in your belief systems. Uh, you know, I do think as a clinician, you do have to have um, belief in what in your intention and. Um, it may take a while to figure out how that all works. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Um, you want to touch on the barriers to PT? Oh, yeah. Why not? There's plenty of barriers. <laughs> we could talk about that. I put this down there only because, there's, you know, the it, uh, I'm someone involved in the in-network uh, scene. And I've, in the last, like three to six months, there's been all these crazy changes. There's uh, those, I'm not, are, those are some changes. I, I just read over that. And it's kind of disturbing because half of those changes I didn't. I mean, aside from that. Lee telling me this, those are some crazy changes. I mean, I could I could um, echo those changes on the out of network scene. Mm-hmm. This is going to be critical information for all you practitioners out there. So I'm going to let Lee <laughs> talk start, and I'm just going to interrupt and I'll give you the out of network story because there's there is an out of network uh, scenario. Yes. So if you want to go, uh, we highly recommend going back to our podcast, uh, Insurance, the Good, Bad, and the Ugly. But we talk about how insurance works with PT. And some insurances, you know, back in the day or even currently require what's called pre-authorization. So pre-authorization means that you have an insurance plan that you can see the therapist for the initial examination. They usually require more information such as a, a PT script uh, obviously, the initial eval doc and the evidence for that, um, and it's whatever else. Very basic, and it, it usually doesn't tell you anything. By the way, right? <laughs> it's usually senseless information. But 
Exactly. So then, then they receive that information and then they make a decision. You know, a support clinician or, you know, a group of people make a decision. All right, how many visits are they going to get? And it's really, you know, my experience now, nearly 10 years in the industry, is it doesn't matter what I write. They're going to make a decision based on that insurance plan. That, that's what I've come to the conclusion. I had, by the way, remember one of the podcasts I remember, I think I mentioned about the ACL reconstruction. They had like three or four visits. <laughs> I had another case like that for... A shoulder surgery. Fine. Just talk, teach him how to walk. A, sh- a shoulder surgery. And same thing. With six visits? Three to four. Three to four. Three to four visits. And I couldn't believe it. And I was blown away. And, and I re I reread my note. And I was like, I must have made a mistake. Yeah, said he was fine. Yeah. Zero pain. Right. You know, full range of motion. <laughs> Everything playing was Playing basketball. There. Right. Everything was there. The dude's in a sling. I, he had his own pain rating. He put that down. I put down the outcome measure. I said, you know, this, this patient has marked deficits and da-da-da. I mean, there was nothing in there. And I, I requested, I think, uh, 16 visits. You know, the basic. You know, two times a week for eight weeks. And I couldn't believe it, three to four visits. So, you know, this is just reinforcing this idea. It really doesn't – they claim – I love the letter when they when the insurance company, they send the patient. Right. And they, they outline, like, why did I get denied or why did I only get – Patient said, documentation. Right. They just said, your provider, and they'll put your name there. Like, they didn't say, like, you have enough deficits, da-da-da. And then they, sometimes I've had patients bring that document to me, and I laugh, and I bring the document that I wrote for them, and I bring it to them. I was like, do you know what this means? Do you know what this means? This means yeah. this is pretty high deficits. I was like, there's nothing in here that says – and look at the last line right there. Patient would benefit, benefit from, from continued skill therapy. But no, and, no, no, no. I, I know the line. I know the line. It's crazy. <laughs> it's so, like, it, 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 long story short – it doesn't matter truly what the PT puts on there. That has been the case. So with that said, you'll get the number of visits that the, the insurance company thinks that is good for you. Um, and now they're, they're basing, I'm sorry, certain insurances, they're not uh, authorizing visits anymore. They're authorizing units. That that is very that is new to me. Yeah, that's crazy. So units, if you want to go back to the good, bad, bad, and the ugly, ugly, you can listen to that. Or we'll just quickly say it is that every visit will have a certain amount of units that are based on the time that you spend with the PT. So it can be based on the service we provide. Like an IE is is always going to be one unit. A manual therapy can be anywhere between two, three, maybe four units, depending on how long you stay with the person. Da 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 da. So they're authorizing on on units, which is insane. So if it's just like six units, you have like one visit, two visits. I don't know. Yeah, well, you could just spread it out to see them fifteen minutes, you know, once <laughs> a week. Yeah, anyway, well, I, well, you know, fifteen minutes for four weeks, and then you could work on that ACL, work on the knee. That's right. A minimum for one unit is eight minutes. So if I just see you for eight minutes, that's one uh, one. Yeah, one unit. Yeah, that's it. Just oh. come see Lee for eight minutes. He's a he's a doctor. He's a you know he's a magician. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, on the Ada Network scene, pre authorization still it does exist. Uh-huh. Uh, not as prevalent, but it does exist. Even in some of these very expensive insurance plans, um, they do require authorization. Some of them do require authorization. Um, same game is played with. Um, you know, you could have a detailed note. You could have his prescription. But at the end of the day, the insurance company or the third party that they um, hire slash create, um, <laughs> they the third party, um, the third. I love this third party. The, even though the word third party, right? Why would you? Why is a third party involved? Is it? Is it? Uh, you know, I, they want to see objective. 
They want to seem objective. Objective. Even though they own the company. But right. anyway, <laughs> that's a different story. But I think, um, so yeah, this pre-auth exists within a very expensive insurance policy. So yep. unfortunately, everybody goes through that. I haven't heard the unit situation, mm-hmm. but I have been seeing um, or hearing, I hear it. I was going to say I hear things. I hear things. Yeah. Uh, I'm hearing voices. The voices tell me that if a patient has had multiple providers, I uh, example being, you know, this this person has a shoulder condition. They see a doctor. They see another get a second opinion. One of the doctors refer, you know, refers him to a, a physical therapist. He gets some work there. Doesn't really work well. Goes back to another doctor, sends him to another PT. They, the insurance company kind of puts this multiple treatment reduction rate. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So if they, you know, if they've seen, they've seen a couple of things, they just, you know, let's say you're last in line of these providers, they're just going to cut your rate because, you know, the patient is seeing too many people, even though the, the patient is trying to do what we're talking about earlier in the show, which is, do their diligence on their condition. Maybe they didn't like what the doctor had to say. Maybe they didn't like what the therapist had to say. Mm-hmm. Maybe it was inconvenient for them. Maybe it wasn't close to their job. Whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but then the insurance company are arbitrarily kind of uh, just reducing the payment to the provider, mm-hmm. and the patient responsibility is up now. Yeah, that's a whole other can of worms. Mm-hmm. But so basically, they're pushing a lot of these costs on the patients and. You know, certain clinics get that letter and say, well, Joe, you know, you saw 10 providers. We saw you for 10 visits. Sorry, now you owe us, you know, 80% of that, 80% mm-hmm. of what we saw. And and again, it's a barrier for PT. The patient now walks away. Their shoulder still hurts. But um, this is uh, something I'm seeing. Um, also, just denying claims, just the, the waiting game, you know, denying claims because of medical records, because of just because. No, I mean, it's not, I mean. And it's not because, no, but when I say because, there's no real reason. Right. It's just an arbitrary thing. And I, I, I do believe, I don't know. I don't know what I believe, to be honest with you, man. <laughs> I don't know what I believe. I believe that I don't want to even deal with insurance. That's what I want. No, I, yeah, I, so I truly, un- is... unfortunately, I you know, I try to do the best thing by my patients and yep. try to make it as economically feasible for them. Mm-hmm. Um but at the same token, that it's it's such a, for all you clinicians listening out there, is such a it's an additional stress if you open, have your own practice to worry about, you know, and any other thing in life. You know, I mean, I come from fitness. Lee comes from fitness. You work with a patient. Hi, my name is Lee. I charge X X dollars an hour. Great, Lee. I want to see you once a week, twice a week, once every month, whatever. Mm-hmm. They pay you. That's it. No, we have a career that's like, hey, I'm just going to check your insurance. Okay, I, I think I could accept your insurance. You got 10 visits. Let's spread this out. Let's do the right thing. We're doing the ethical thing. Mm-hmm. And then we don't even know if we're going to get paid. By the way, guys, we might get paid in four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks, maybe 12 weeks. Maybe it could be six months. Maybe they well, might take money from you. Maybe they might take money from you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> maybe, maybe That maybe. happened to us recently. Oh, they just they they pulled, pulled funds back? I shouldn't say that. They sent us a letter. It's like, oh, we made a mistake. We overpaid you. Please send us a check within 45 days. How the hell did you make a mistake? 
This was too oil. Well, well, I won't go into right, detail. Right, 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 right. It was a small amount, but I was just like, get your shit together. Like, this is, yeah. I don't oh, think you overpaid me, number one. Yeah, right, 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 right. Oh, that's a. I've never, I've never heard of an overpayment. Yeah, oh, by the way, but if you didn't pay, what'll happen is, yeah. well, the next claim you send, they'll just take it off the top. Like, hey, you owe us X dollars. Yep. We just took it. No, yeah, I, I mean, I do want to get into that a little bit, not too crazy, but I want to mention one one other thing that they're doing is certain insurances no longer accept two codes. Oh, I'm sorry, three yeah. codes: Therex, Manual this. Therapy, or Nor Norriet. So you can just bill with along with the eval as just therapeutic activities. So what that means is everything that I do with a person is just underneath the category of therapeutic activities, which is hilarious to me because if you think about this baseline knowledge of what these bill these codes are, right? Remember this argument about Norriad yeah, and how being, they want to be very specific, it, right? Being specificity, right? They want, hey, neuro, you better have a neural condition. Exactly. So now th this this insurance company is like, no, just bill under Therex. Just put your manual under there. Put your therapeutic exercise. Trap. I think it's a trap. Then they're gonna of be course. like, oh. They can therapeutic, say exactly. therapeutic activities. Oh, I'm sorry, right. we changed our mind. There, it's kind of vague. Right. What did you do? Did you talk to them? Did you touch them? Did you east them? Did you ultrasound them? Did you walk them in the pool? Right. It's oh. just. I agree with Eric though. Like, I don't want to deal with insurance anymore. These things keep happening every year, and they keep figuring out new ways to put barriers on. And we're not trying to be negative. And that's some feedback I've gotten from people when they listen to the podcast. I'm not trying to be negative about this. We're, we're two practicing clinicians in new york city and we're both experiencing the in-network side of it and the out-of-network side right, of it right. this is just how it is and it shouldn't be like this what we're trying to say is that you don't have to have these issues you can do what the majority uh, i shouldn't say the majority which some people are now doing successfully right out of school which is cash and technically out-of-network and the more successful clinics like that get and businesses like that get there's going to be more and more of that as time goes on. There's going to be more people saying, I want to do that because I can actually sit down with a patient right. and I can work with them. We can actually go to a gym. We can do movement. This is what the research is showing that yeah, is helpful. I'm going to get a cheaper insurance policy because the expensive policy ah, doesn't even – I don't even, even get my money's worth with that. you know. And it's right. not even worth – it's not worth the additional whatever. Right. And hopefully, this is the hope, is that if there are more and more of those cash and out-of-network practices, then there'll be less and less of those in-network practices. Right. And I'm not trying to bash them. I'm just saying that right. this is the insurance company. We're trying to work with treating the patient and do the best by the patient, right? We're not trying to say every corporation is bad, da-da-da-da. No, this no. is our response from what's happening. So, you know, we're, we're trying to figure out how can I spend more time with this patient? How can I logistically stay alive as a business, stay alive as a clinician, still want to be a physical therapist and treat this patient and also have a life for ourselves, too, because we, we worked hard to get our degree, worked hard to pass our license, and we want to have families. We want to, you know, enjoy these things as normal people do. And, and the hustle of dealing with the intricacies of things that don't make sense, like the insurance companies, is really not worth our time because it's not helping anybody except it's helping them. Right, right. I think um, just clarity. I, I guess that's the, the moral of all of this. This last uh, part of this podcast is really it's impossible. To, and you talk to ec the experts, let's say, in billing, um, if you want to call them that, mm -hmm. you, you – the, the needle's always moving, mm -hmm. you know, and 
and again, it's it, it's a needle that I don't want to follow. I rather I want to follow my patient. I want to be able to come to the table and not even ha- have a clear. I don't want to have to talk about responsibility and yada yada yada. And by the way, it's changed. And anyhow, yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, the reason it sounds it may sound negative to some people in the public is that <laughs> it's um it's very frustrating when we're trying to do our best by our patients and we're so passionate about what we do. Um, literally like, you know, in a small way, it's changing, changing people's lives in many cases, giving them more capacity to be able to do what they, whatever the hell they want to do. So, um, yeah. Did you, did you hear, uh, the surgeon general apparently had a statement at the CSM or something like that? Oh, physical therapy's high on the list. Yeah. So did you hear, you heard of this? I didn't hear, I, I, I read a little blurb. I must have read like three sentences, but I, what? I read, yeah, I, I didn't read it. I'll be honest. I didn't read the whole thing, but, um, one of my colleagues showed it to me and they're like, yeah, they said that we're going to be the primary, um, go to to fight the opioid crisis, and I'm like, okay, great. So, what are your steps? So, tell me in detail. You can't just say things like that. That's great that you're focusing yeah. on us, mm-hmm. but give us some more options. What so, are we going to collect pills, bro? We're going to be like, yeah, hey, listen, like, come see me. Drop those, <laughs> drop the oxy in the garbage. Come on, I'm going to rub your back. Give us a, 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 you know, like a everything plan, else. A clear plan. Yeah, clear like plan. everything else in, um, you know, corporations and government, they have a friggin' action plan. And we're, and we're not talking like what you're going to uh, implement in terms of this theoretical crap. I want some practical things. Like what we're seeing right now with the insurances, this practical shit, this ain't helping us. This is giving yeah. us more barriers and it's harder for patients to see us and it's harder for patients to get the information that they need that will help them get off those opioids. So oh, until yeah. we see changes in that, I ain't going to believe you. I mean, we've already been kind of pushed around uh, plenty with what we're looked at right now at the, by the general public because you want us to build manual therapy and ultrasound, electrical stim. And so that's what PTs have been doing for the last 40 years or whatever we've been around for. And we can do a lot more than that. And there's a lot more evidence to show. And the evidence that shows how to help people is what we're experts in, movement uh, and education. Right. No, I, I mean, these barriers, unfortunately, kind of lead right into the top of the top of our podcast today, which is, you know, people that have barriers to get into physical therapy often get into this persistent pain pattern. And unfortunately, they start getting desperate and resort to either some unnecessary surgery. And in some cases, as we know, you know, here in America, just getting on pain medicine and, um, that's obviously not the way to take care of any kind of musculoskeletal issue long term. No. Um, welcome back. Yeah. We're back in action. <laughs> We're back in action. I'm going to let Lee do a little preview. Who's our yes. guest uh, coming on in a week from now? Uh, we got some solid guests. Uh, we've got some really good friends of ours who own a very successful uh, gym in the city. And they have some particular methods that we both see as successful as Absolutely. helping people learn how to move. Uh, we also have some incredible business owners who are, uh, they own their own PT practices and they are uh, kind of implementing what we keep talking about here in, the, in this podcast, which is cash base at a network and primarily educating and getting people moving strength training and they're trying to do what we're, we keep talking about which is spread the word of what we can do and also get people uh, off of pain medications off of those cycles of disability things like that so 
it's going to be an interesting couple of weeks. Definitely. And then I don't want to mention, uh, well, we didn't mention names here, but we're also trying to get a professional Muay Thai boxer that we train with um, at Henzo's. And um, he's a cool guy. I hope to have him back. And we also are going to have some old guests. So uh, stay tuned. Uh, looking forward to uh, another few months of uh, some crazy chats. That's right. A few good physios 2019. Signing off. Signing off. Thank you. Thank you for listening to A Few Good Physios. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook. Follow us each week while we interview guests and have clinical commentary. 